I don't normally do announcement type things at the beginning of the message. I like to kind of jump right in. But today, uh, I'm going to make an exception. Just a couple of things real quick. Towards the end of the service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And if you did not get the elements, they're in baskets at the doors on the way in. And so just... Anytime I'm talking, feel free to slip back there and get those during the service so you can celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, with us. We have a, a wonderful, unique opportunity. Um, we have, if you attend here, you know uh, that we're attuned to the foster care community. And we have a number of foster and adoptive families here in our church, and we do what we can to serve them, but also to serve our broader community uh, and in supporting Walton County defects. Uh, there is a new way that if you haven't been involved or if you have and you're looking for a different way to support foster care ministry, uh, that we're going to be able to, to do that. It, it's a program called Care Portal. A Angela Valenzuela is in our church, and she's helping get us connected with Care Portal. Care Portal is an online uh, opportunity to learn of needs within our community that we could need. Uh, some of, that we could meet. Some of those have to do with foster care families. Most of those have to do with biological families that if they receive just a little bit of support might be able to keep their family together. And, and our heart goes both ways. We know that uh, sometimes it is in the best uh, for the safety of a child that they be removed for a period of time, that they, they go into foster care or, or even adoption. But we also know that we have a responsibility to support biological families if they can be reunited because uh, there's a lot of reasons why that is usually in the best interest of the children. Care Portal allows us to do that. What Care Portal does is it makes us aware of those needs within Walton County, within our community that we might be able to meet. Everything from somebody needs a mattress or uh, they need an extra bed in, in order to keep their family together, Defect says they need one more bed, and so we're going to try to meet those needs uh, as best we can, along with other churches in our community. We're having a, a training meeting, orientation meeting, this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. If you are at all interested, I encourage you to be here. You are not committing yourself to be a part by coming Wednesday, but you can get valuable information to know whether this is something you want to be involved in. Give you just a real brief example from this past week. I had a, a family in our church text me and say, uh, Pastor, we, we have a good working washer and dryer that we're wanting to get rid of. Do you know anybody who needs it? And I texted Angela, and Angela checked Care Portal, and there was a mom who's about to be reunited with her 16-year-old son, and she doesn't have a washer and dryer. And so within about 48 hours, we were able to uh, identify a need, put a new washer and dryer in there, giving her a better chance of building a strong home for her and her son that's about to come home. So these are the sort of stories you could be a part of if you're a part of Care Portal. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Last thing, we'll jump into the new series. I um, uh, want to give shout-outs. Loganville High School Baseball back-to-back -back state champions. Bravo. <laughs> Wonderful. Outstanding. Yes, if you don't know, the head coach, Brand Mills, is in our church. He was in the first service, and as I said, in the first service, uh, every Loganville High School baseball team that he has ever been the head coach of has won a state championship. So 
He's been the head coach for two years in a row, and they've won state championships both years. So absolutely incredible. Did Caden make it into this service? There's Caden Freeman right here. Was the winning pitcher of game two. He got the W for the deciding championship game. So uh, proud of Loganville High School Red Devils. We don't shout out the devil a whole lot here at Journey. It's kind of a matter of principle for us. But when it comes to the baseball, football, sports teams of our high schools, we'll, we'll give a shout out. Um, we are all familiar with world leaders. As a matter of fact, if I, if I just say the world, the word world leaders, probably some of your favorites bubble to the top. You probably have some favorite world leaders. You have a favorite president, probably. If you had to pick one, you, you could pick one. Uh, a favorite president, favorite uh, global leader, favorite leader of a cause, maybe a social cause or a social issue. Those names fairly readily come to mind when we think of global leaders, national leaders, cultural leaders within our world. One of the things that causes leaders to come to mind, to rise to the top, is that they led during a time of difficulty or tragedy or chaos. There was some world event, national event, or, or cultural event that was swirling. There was darkness, there was conflict, there was chaos, and somebody emerged from that. And rather than being swept away by the conflict and chaos, they were steady. They were discerning. They were wise. They spoke clearly, and people gravitated towards them. There are unique challenges to leading when everything is good. Right? It has a unique set, a unique set of challenges when everything's calm and there aren't any real tragedies. But the leaders we remember are the ones that emerge out of conflict. There's something about conflict being the backdrop. Tragedy, difficulty, chaos being the backdrop that causes leaders to stand out. Uh, we're going to study just such a leader in this new series. We're, we're, we're going to cover someone who stepped into, actually was born into, a very difficult, harsh, tragic time and emerged as one of our most well-known leaders of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I would say he is the most significant leader in the Old Testament. And you know what the series is. We, we just introduced it. We're, we're going to be talking about Moses, who, again, I think is the most significant leader in the Old Testament. His story is the most significant story in all of the Old Testament. There are some characters, there are some leaders in the Old Testament that get a few verses of description, and there's some that get a chapter, and, and there's a few that get a book. Moses' story spans four books, the second through the fifth books of our Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy. That's all the lifespan and teachings of this character, Moses. He is incredibly significant, and as I mentioned, as, as most leaders emerge in times of tragedy and difficulty, that's the, cult, that's the environment that Moses emerges from. One of the unique aspects of Moses is that he emerges during a time when God is revealing so many details of his plan for his people. God is, in a sense, systematizing and codifying, and I don't use those words negatively, God is systematizing 
what his people are to be like. This is what the nation is supposed to be like. These are the laws you're supposed to follow. These are the rules. These are the way you should treat each other. This is how you should handle civic issues and social issues and issues of justice. This is what the tabernacle is going to be. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it operates. This is how the priests are supposed to work. These are the laws and the commands. If ever there were an Old Testament uh, character who is the epitome of putting the airplane together while it's flying, it's Moses. Because he's not just leading two million people out of Egypt and into the promised land. He's receiving from God all of this information about who we are supposed to be, the nation of Israel, who they're supposed to be as a nation and as a people. His, his influence over the rest of the Old Testament and over the New Testament is Immense. Now, if you know the story, Genesis closes out with the death of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, becomes second in command. Then Joseph's extended family, his father, his brothers, all of their wives and children, they all move to Egypt to escape a famine. Between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, a little more than 300 years have passed and Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. The legacy of Joseph has long since been forgotten. His greatness in Egypt has long since been forgotten. Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, this is an interesting twist in the grand scheme of the Bible, because the very place that was intended to be their salvation now becomes the place of their slavery. The very place that God led them to at one time is no longer a safe place. It's no longer a place where they can thrive. What, what was a blessing rescuing uh, Jacob and his family from famine, what was a blessing has now become a curse in their life. Here, here's something about the way our lives kind of ebbs and flows from Moses' life. Sometimes... Where God took you is not where you're supposed to stay. Some, sometimes where God took you is not where you're supposed to stay. He led you to a particular place. He led you to a particular spot, and it was right, and it was good, and that was the place you were supposed to be. But then there came a time when it was no longer the place you were supposed to stay. Some of, some of us like to, to go places and stay, right? We want to put down roots. We don't like change. We don't want to move around. The reality is that sometimes God leads us to a place and it's good and it's right and it's healthy and it's healing. But as time passes, that's no longer the place we're supposed to stay. We don't have to rewrite the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is still a wonderful story. It's still a story of God's redemption and God's salvation for his people but time has passed, and the place God took them is not where he wants them to remain. You may find that in your life sometimes. You don't have to rewrite the past. You don't have to decide, oh, well, that last thing must have been terrible because it's no longer good for me. No, it may have been right for a season, 
But there's a new right for the next season. Things had changed in Egypt. The, the culture had changed. The, the temperature had changed. This is verse 11. So they, the Egyptians, put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. If we, if we put a word wall together, the words that keep popping up just in this short little section, they would include oppress, harsh, bitter, slaves, ruthlessly. The place that was a blessing is now a curse. The, the place where there was good, there's now oppression. They're treated ruthlessly. The Egyptians were cruel for the sake of being cruel to this group of people. The Egyptians were ruthless for the sake of being ruthless. And there is no indication that the, the Israelites did anything to cause this reaction from the Egyptians. There's, there's nothing in the scripture that says, well, they were acting this way, and that's why they were treated that way. Apparently, their existence, just the fact that they were other than, they were a different culture, they were a different people group, just their existence was reason enough for their cruelty. Chuck Swindoll gets to the heart of the issue when he writes, roll back the rock of brutality and fear crawls out from underneath. Roll back the rock of brutality. Fear crawls out. What motivates us to hate? Fear. Fear. What, what drives bigotry? Fear. What causes one group of people to look at another group of people in a negative light? Fear. Roll back the rock of brutality and fear crawls out from underneath. The interesting thing is the Egyptian king and, and, and the Egyptian people, they were not afraid of what the Israelites had done. They were afraid of what the Israelites might do. They had created in their minds a worst-case scenario for how those people are going to react, the way those people are, what those people might do. It wasn't something they had done. It was the perspective that the Egyptians had created in their mind for what they might do. Again, this is the way hate works. This is the way bigotry works. I don't need a specific reason. I've determined what they might do. Swindoll goes on to say, once you've decided to starve or beat or mistreat one person, it becomes easy to persecute a whole population. And that's exactly what the Egyptians did. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shepra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. This, this fear, this brutality, it rose to a level not just of murder but of genocidal murder. Pharaoh, playing the long game, is looking to wipe out 
the Hebrews. He's looking to rob them of their strength. If he could cut off the supply of males, then eventually they grow weaker. They have fewer leaders, perhaps. And certainly the birth rate eventually, if he's playing the long game, eventually is going to go down. We will maintain power over them. So he, he cooks up this secret plan. He calls in the midwives and says, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. You don't have to tell anybody. Just tell them it was stillborn. Keep it our little secret. And he's going to systematically begin to murder the boys of the Hebrews. The, the thing about every important story is that it always begins with courage. It always begins with courage. Without courage, the brutality would just keep going. Without courage on somebody's part, the harshness, the bigotry, the, the, the criticism is just going to keep going until somebody says, I'm not participating in this. I won't be a part of this. Listen to what happens in verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. This is how every significant turn happens. This is how every significant movement happens. Somebody just has enough courage to say no. Somebody has just enough courage to say, it won't be me. I'm not going to go along with it. I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. Somebody has the courage to say no. Now, here's the thing about courage. To be a person of courage, you don't have to be courageous in every situation. You just have to be courageous in the right situations. You don't have to be courageous in every situation. We meet these midwives. We don't know if this is their first time being courageous or their 10th time or their 50th time. We have no idea how many times they've stepped forward and how many times they shrunk back. But we know at this pivotal moment, they said, not me. I'm going to make a stand. I'm going to say no. I'm going to be courageous. And the only way that I know to be Courageous. Now, we don't know about the midwives, but we definitely know about Moses. Moses was not always courageous. Moses had this habit of swinging back and forth between courage and fear, if you know his story. He had this habit of swinging back and forth between confidence and insecurity. I, I preached on Moses a couple of series back, and I told you, one, one author I read described him as chronically insecure chronically insecure. He's always doubting himself and questioning himself. And yet he's, he's this picture of courage. Why? Not because he was always courageous, but because he was courageous when it counted. He was courageous in the critical moment. If you want to be courageous, you, you don't have to be courageous all the time. You don't have to look at your life and say, well, I've kind of got some fears. I've kind of got some insecurities. I don't think there's a role for me. You just got to know when the moment to step up really is. You don't have to argue about every issue. You don't have to get mad about every opinion. You don't have to offer words into every discussion. You don't have to be obnoxious. You don't have to be a jerk. You just have to know this is the moment and I won't back down. This is one that I can't let pass by. You don't have to be courageous all the time. You just got to be courageous at the right time. And you got to be ready 
to stand. Realizing that his plan for the midwives had failed, verse 22 tells us, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. No longer a secret plan. No longer under the cover of darkness. This was public terror. I want them to publicly see their little boys being murdered. I want them to hear the screams. I want it to echo through the Hebrew section of our community. I want it to be known what is happening. And you just think about living through that. Think about being a mom, a dad, a sibling. And this begins to happen in your community and slowly questions start to bubble up like, God, where are you? God, why aren't you doing anything? God, God, are you going to keep your promises? Long ago, God had told Abraham, my people are going to have the promised land. They're going to live in freedom, a land flowing with milk and honey. Like, that was the best way to describe this wonderful, luxurious life, this, this life of freedom, this, this life of resources. And now, as the screams echo through the community, you're asking, when's that going to happen? God, have you forgotten what you said you would do, which is not just questions that they ask in Egypt, right? It's questions we ask throughout our life. When we find ourselves in challenging situations, in difficult circumstances, we ask those same questions. God, are you going to be true to what you said? God, God are, you, are you going to keep your promises? God, where are you? This is one of the reasons this story is so significant because it paints that picture of wondering if God will ever come through and into this moment of question and into this moment of discouragement. God sends a person, which is how God tends to respond to the struggles that we encounter in this world. God's plan seems to be when he needs something accomplished, he looks for a courageous person to send into the middle of the darkness. Now, we may question that plan because we know people, don't we? Like if we wanted something accomplished, we probably wouldn't get people to do it because people are notoriously unreliable. And yet God says, this is the way I'm going to work. What I need in this world I need some people of courage. I need some people who will trust me and who will believe me. In Acts chapter 7, the, the, old, the, the New Testament constantly references this story. Again, one of the reasons it's so important. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching before he's going to be stoned. He's recounting God's work throughout the Old Testament stories. When he gets to the story of Moses, he writes... As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. At that time, Moses was born. When was he born? At that time, 
At what time? When everything was falling apart. When darkness and terror reigned. When families were broken apart and lives were shattered at that time. This is what God does. God sends us into places of brokenness, darkness, where it looks like darkness is winning to be light. Look, Moses was a unique character of the Old Testament, a unique character of history. I don't want to diminish that, but you know when you were born? You were born at that time. At that time. And the question is, are you going to step into that or not? Are you going to have the courage to accept? You can't, you can't handle every issue. You can't step into every issue. Where is God calling you into that you would bring light into dark places? That you would share with people around you that there is another land. There is a way to be free. There is hope outside of what we're currently experiencing. You were born at that time. Listen, God's plan has always been to send a deliverer. And sometimes deliverer looks like you. Looks like me. Looks like us, not somebody else. Not somebody who lived thousands of years ago. Sometimes that looks like you. If you just have the courage to step forth. I said it. Moses wrestles with it. You're not, you're not perfectly courageous and neither am I. Mo Moses swings back and forth between confidence and insecurity. But deep down, courage won. It won. Moses was determined that his insecurities would not win. His fears would not win. And when you and I are facing crucial decisions... When we are facing moments where we could be God's representative in this world, don't let insecurity win. Don't let fear win. Don't let that voice talk you out of what God is propelling you to do. Deep down, Moses decided fear wasn't going to win in my life. And I think part of the reason was because it's in his DNA. I mean, it was, it was hardwired into him. He got it honestly from his mom and his dad. Hebrews chapter 11, as it's telling the story of Moses, starts this way. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid. They didn't care. They were filled with courage. Mom and dad, no, we're not all parents. I know some of us are kind of out of that phase, maybe just a little bit. Mom and dad, you want to raise courageous kids, you got to be courageous. You, you want your kids to walk without fear. They need to look at you and see that you walk without fear. Moses, mom and dad were not afraid. I mean, imagine that moment they discover it's a boy, right? There were no gender reveals. Thousands of years ago, right? No cannons with blue stuff. No blue powder. Nobody's blowing up anything to find out if it's pink or not. There was none of that. Gender reveal day was birthday. The child is born. Gender is revealed. Ah, it's a boy. And they, they look at this boy and they say, this is no ordinary child. Stephen said it. The writer of Hebrews said it. 
Exodus said, this is an ordinary child. Which, let's be honest, every parent says that. <laughs> Never met a cha- parent who didn't say, oh, my child's exceptional. Above average. Above average. Yeah, my child. Best athlete. Yeah, significantly better athlete than everybody else on the field. If you don't believe that, just coach Little League for a season. Just coach Little League. You'll find out every parent thinks they have no ordinary child. Best musician, best artist, highest GPA. Everybody looks at their child and says, this is no ordinary child. Even parents of infants, have you noticed this? Even parents of infants have a way of saying, they just, they just focus on you. Look at the way he focuses at you. I don't, I, other, other kids don't focus the way my kid focuses. His eye, he'll follow you around. And I just nod my head and think, mm, probably gas. <laughs> yeah, I focus when I have gas, right? <laughs> but that's what we do. So if you're a new parent, I'm not giving you a hard time. I did it too. All right, ask me. Ask me. Your kids aren't exceptional. Mine are. My kids are better than all your kids. That's what we do as parents. We see our children through this lens of no ordinary child. Moses' parents, they look at him. This is no ordinary child. And they were right. They were right. Now, I, I, I don't know if they sent something different than what the rest of the parents sent. I don't know how far down the road they saw. We're not told an angel visited them. Nobody whispered in their ear. But somehow they knew something, and they believed that it was their responsibility to protect this child. They just knew he's no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king, so they decided to to defy the king. They took their little baby boy, and they put him in a basket. And note of trivia, uh, the scriptures tell us that they coated the basket with pitch. That's mentioned two times in the Bible. This one, the basket. The second one's the ark. A place where God put people to rescue them out of darkness, out of suffering. A place where they could have died. I mean, think about this. The, the, the Hebrew boys were to be thrown into the Nile to die. And it is the place of death that God brings life in the story of Moses. I mean, he puts Moses right in the middle of what was supposed to kill him. And it not only provides life for Moses, but that move is going to provide life for the whole nation. God brings life out of death for his people. Moses floats down the river. If you know the story, Pharaoh's daughter is bathing at the end and Moses' mother is watching from afar. Can you imagine what her heart rate was at that moment. You imagine how she's holding her breath, wondering if Pharaoh's daughter is just as cruel as Pharaoh himself, waiting and waiting, and that moment when she recognizes compassion in her face. That moment when she knows it's going to be Moses' mom and her daughter had kind of worked out the signal, this plan where the daughter would go to Pharaoh, who recognized this was a Hebrew child, and say, would you, would you like for me to find a Hebrew nurse 
to come help you nurse the child. And Pharaoh's daughter said yes. And so Miriam runs back to Moses' mother and, and brings her to Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses' mother gets to nurse him and to raise him in those critical first few years to be a part of his life. And check it out, mothers. She gets paid for it, right? Wouldn't that have been awesome? She gets to raise her own son, and she gets paid for it by Pharaoh's daughter, and she gets to shape him and, and pray over him and speak the words of God to him until it's time to send him to the palace. And in an amazing twist, God manages to smuggle his deliverer behind enemy lines in the form of a child into the place where Moses would learn all of the secrets of the palace and how the relationships work and who had the power and what happened when this person spoke and who he was really listening to. God snuck him right in there. And here's what I would say to you. You've been smuggled in somewhere. It's not just Moses. You've been smuggled in somewhere. And we, we are here as representatives of the light come to illuminate the darkness you have been placed somewhere you have been put around some people you have been given influence in some areas not just for you but so that you would bring light to this world you've been smuggled in somewhere if you don't feel like it ask God to give you a basket in a river say God tell me where I'm supposed to be God, tell me where I'm supposed to take your light your love your grace I want to be on the inside and here again, this very place, this very place that was meant for death becomes life. As we work through this story <clears throat> over the next couple of weeks, we're going to drill down into the, the details of the story and, and what God was doing and how Moses experienced it. But we're going to keep reflecting on this, this reality that there's more to the story than the story. It's not just events and details. It's not just a river and a basket. This is a story foreshadowing what's coming. Because Moses is a shadow of Christ. In studying the Bible <clears throat> with Old Testament characters, we sometimes talk about types of Christ. We call it typology. That's a fancy word. But essentially, <clears throat> there are characters in the Old Testament that teach us something about what Christ was going to be and do. There is no greater shadow of Christ in the Old Testament. There is no more complete shadow of the work of Christ in the Old Testament than Moses. Jesus comes thousands of years later. <clears throat> when is he born? He's born in a time of chaos, right? A time of darkness. Rome is ruling over God's people. They are subject to another power, another country. They don't have the freedoms that they want. They're in need of, they're looking for a deliverer. Jesus is born to courageous parents. Courageous parents who experienced an unusual pregnancy and birth. Absolutely. Absolutely. There were multiple reasons for Joseph to run. There were multiple reasons for Mary to say, not me, I'm out. But they didn't. They were not afraid. 
They were not afraid of what anyone else thought because God had called them to something great. Galatians chapter 4. Paul writes, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship and daughtership. When? At the right time. When the set time had come. At the right time, the deliverer, Jesus, was born. Not just, to, not just for Jesus to be set free. So that we could all be set free. So that we could all know a deliverer who brought grace and love and truth and peace justice a deliverer who would go to the very place of death so that we might have life who would put himself on a cross receiving our sin our punishment he would die in our place and rise again three days later he would go to the very place of death and bring life for all of us Moses story is not just Moses story it is a foreshadowing that God had a plan. Moses' life is it's full of twists and turns. He was imperfect in many ways. We will look at some of those. He was not always courageous. Uh, some of the laws are really weird. Right? You start reading through Moses' life. There's a lot of things to kind of get tripped up on. But the message of Moses is that God sends a deliverer to people who are in bondage. God sends a savior to people who are enslaved, and that's us. That's us in Christ, our Moses, our deliverer. Hebrews says greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses in that he came and paid for our sins to lead us out of slavery, to lead us out of our sins and into freedom in Christ. No wonder. No wonder that just before Jesus gave his life away on the cross, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room and they remembered Moses. They remembered the freedom out of Egypt. They remembered their ancestors who had been set free. When they had finished that Passover meal when they had walked back through Egypt and, and plagues and, and bitterness and harshness and freedom Jesus said I, I want you to take another piece of bread I want you to take another piece of bread because this story is not finished yet I, I'm going to add something to this story. This is my body. It's going to be broken for all of you, he told his followers. It's going to be broken. You, you have an image of, of Moses leading people out of slavery. I'm going to lead us all out. So he told them, they didn't know what was coming. They, they hadn't put it all together yet. He said, when you eat this, 
I want you to remember that it happened. That I was broken for you. For you, because I love you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. And by taking the cup, he was saying, for thousands of years you've been sacrificing animals, stuff. You've been, you've been, blood's been flowing. Moses gives them the instructions for sacrifice for sins, and day after day, day after day, they were doing it. Day after day. Sacrifice for sins. Sacrifice for sins. Sacrifice for sins. Once a year, they'd have a whole day. Well, they just set their heart on our sins are, are going to the sacrifice and he's bearing our sacrifice. <clears throat> and the writer of Hebrews comes along later and says, none of that took away sins. Sorry. None of it took away sins. It's just, it's just getting you ready. It's just getting you ready because one day, the spotless lamb of God was going to come and that sacrifice was going to count. It was going to count. Forever, for always, for everything. It was going to count. Jesus was going to take away your sin and no other sacrifice would have to be made ever again. So around that table, he gave them the cup and said, this is my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. Because <clears throat> I love you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father God, you didn't want us to miss it. <laughs> you didn't want us to miss it. So you, you gave us all these pictures, all these images. You, you sent a courageous Moses to be a deliverer. Not so we'd know a history lesson. Not so we'd know some cool story. But so our hearts would be ready when Jesus came. And became our ultimate sacrifice. Once and for all. To anyone that will turn to you. To anyone that will put their faith in you. Anyone at all. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.